Uh, real quick before this episode gets started, you may notice a little bit of a change halfway through the episode. Uh, I had an issue with my uh, recording system. I had to switch to a different one. I had to switch to a different mic. You're probably going to hear my voice a little bit different. Just to let you know that is what is going on. I apologize. Uh, we are going to get it fixed uh, for the next episode. But just wanted to let you know. No, it is not your earbuds. No, it is not your phone. No, it is not your car. It is my uh, great equipment that I'm using. So. Apologize. Thank you all so much. Welcome to the World on Fire podcast. I am your host, as always, historian and researcher Nick Schweitzer. Um, I just kind of give out a little bit of an apology if I sound a tad groggy, right? Uh, last week, uh, spent celebrating some personal successes, uh, some professional successes, uh, uh, my, my birthday. And, uh, of course, to put it lightly, you know, I'm, 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 I'm pretty exhausted, <laughs> pretty exhausted and I'm ready for a vacation. I'm tired. Uh, but I'm going to make sure that I am alive and excited as ever to deliver our final piece for Battle of Peleliu story. But of course, before we dive into any of it, I want to give a quick shout out to our partners over at the History List and Might and Fury World War II. Uh, we love and appreciate the support here, and we love the support our listeners give them. How do you feel about that? If you haven't checked them out yet, go do it. It's uh, it's the easiest thing you can do, and I'm I'm sure you'll end up in a rabbit hole that you'll spend hours in, but you'll enjoy it. So, uh, yeah, so got them out of the way. Uh, let's open up our second chapter in the story. The part we have all been waiting for, right? Last episode was just preparation and political pitter-patter and people messaging me, Hey, Nick, the hell are you going to bring up the war part? This is a World War II podcast, right? And to that, I say, touche. Good point. This is when I'm going to bring up the war part, all right? And before we do get into it, let me give a warning. Of course, right? I'm a gentleman first. I'm going to be utilizing written memoirs from Marines who fought on Peleliu. And with that, their language will uh, come off, how shall we say, racist, uh, especially by today's standards. Um, uh, with that, please understand that I am only doing this as I am reading direct readings. I'm not going to go off on a tangent. Uh, that's not who I am as a person, so not going to happen on this podcast. Um, along with that, this battle was bloody and pure evil. To the death, gritted teeth, mashing of souls, and I absolutely refuse to tiptoe around the realities of war and the fighting that takes place. War is a real, harrowing, and in many cases, they are gut-wrenching. If you are not a fan of graphic depictions of war, I suggest you maybe dance around this episode or go check out some of our... If you will, lesser 
graphic episodes. Um, with that, let's reset where we were two weeks ago. September 15th, 1944. The first, the fifth, and the seventh Marines are wading to the shore of Peleliu with an objective to secure an airstrip to, to provide aerial support to General MacArthur's troops moving to the Philippines. However, their Colonel Nakagawa has prepared the Japanese defense to provide within the Umbergal Mountains and wait for the Marines to pile up on the beach and unleash a surprising hell of fire down upon them. This may sound a little familiar to a little bit later on down the road, six months down the road, Iwo Jima. It would be perfected at Iwo Jima. This was a good learning point for the next commander. Um, and when we get to that in a series eventually down the road, we're going to expand on that a little bit further. Uh, however, on Iwo Jima, this skill of allowing the Marines to build up on the beach and then absolutely just unloading on them, uh, it was perfected there. But it was started here. So if we can imagine after uh, the first few thousand Marines were on the beach, Nakagawa gave the order. Jim Young, a spry Marine infantryman from Pennsylvania attached to the 5th Marines, made it to a shore as fire opened up. From his quote, from the reefs onto the beach, the water was littered with wreckage. Many of the Amtraks were on fire. While looking, I saw one boat take a direct hit. Marines flew 20 feet into the air. It seemed to be an all in slow motion. Body parts, legs, and arms splashed everywhere. Down the line, famous author, future professor, and current Marine mortarman during World War II, E.B. Sledge would write of his experience on the beach. Japanese machine gun bursts made long splashes on the water as though flaying it with some giant whip. The geysers belched up relentlessly where the mortar and artillery shells hit. Caught a fleeting glimpse of a group of Marines leaving a smoking Amtrak on the reef. Some fell as bullets and fragments splashed among them. Their bodies, their buddies tried to help them as they struggled in the knee-deep water. Less than an hour later, in a mix of confusion and hellish fire, a tank that was meant to support Sledge and his men mistaken them for Japanese soldiers. Lowered their turret and began to rake the mortar pit with machine gun fire. Luckily and surprisingly, the entire team would survive a friendly fire encounter. Marines all along the line are now pinned down and in a desperate fight for their life. What General Rupertus had said would be an easy capture in only last two or three days was clearly a miscalculation, and this small island would be a final resting place for thousands of Marines, they couldn't even get off the beach. However, the, the Marines did have something the Japanese could not beat. Landing with conventional forces would be the elite linguists, the Native American tribe, the Navajo. Now, Navajo men were recruited by the United States Marine Corps in order to create a code unable to be broken by the Japanese. With landing with the 5th Marines on Peleliu would be experienced code talker Chester Nez. 
And in his personal memoir, he wrote of his immediate action once making it to the beach in the deafening cover of machine gun fire and explosions. A runner, no doubt, noting my TBX radio, dove flat out beside me and handed me a message. I inched over towards Francis, so I was close enough to plug in and started cranking. He reached for the message, and he sent it. Before the Japanese could pinpoint the location of where we had sent our message, we dashed towards an even similar depression in the sand. But in Chester's story, before the artillery could even get into action, all of the charges surrounding the artillery piece detonated, effectively muting the cannon. And so... To throw even more madness into this chaos that's going on. So you remember me talking last episode how Marines would be led ashore by none other than the embodiment of the Marine Corps itself, Colonel Chesty Puller. Well, he did that, and as his LVT was coming to shore, a shell streaking across the sky would make a direct hit on his ship just as it was making it to the beach. While Puller was not killed, a majority of his staffers were, and he was jacked up, right? Chesty Puller was seriously injured during this and almost killed. So now with the experience and advantage of an unbroken code, uh, they were totally defenseless, even with it. They, they couldn't get the messages out. And hell is quite literally raining down on them. Now, everyone, I know exactly what you're going to say. Right now, are you telling me the almighty United States Navy, United States Marine Corps combo didn't realize this one mountain range? Say, hey, probably some guys in there, we should shell the hell out of it. Uh, you, most of us would probably say, yeah, right? Uh, and they should have seen it. They should have seen the Ermbergal Mountains. But the one thing that we are forgetting to add to the story is the landscape of Peleliu. While, yes, formed by volcanoes like every other island in the Pacific, uh, Peleliu's ground is dense with coral. It's like thick as concrete, right? Uh, so with, with an environment like this uh, and how it manifests in growing its own humid climate, uh, it's very close to the equator, uh, there is uh, one type of vegetation that not only grows in this environment, but it thrives. It's the palm tree. And uh, for those of the, so those of you that don't know, the palm groves on Peleliu are vastly thick and cover a large-ass majority of this island. Now, if you've never seen a coconut tree before, right, uh, they're tall, thin, and the vegetation is really kind of on the top of the tree. So if you could imagine a whole bunch of these all together when you're on the ground level, you can see through it, right? It might be, it might be dense, but you can see through it. But if you're flying a reconnaissance plane over this shit, there's really, you can't really tell. You have your, your guessing. Uh, so, uh, when, when the, the Navy and the Marines are flying over to get a topographical, uh, estimate of this island, they have zero idea there, that the Ermbergal mountain range even exists. So by not knowing, they figured the Japanese would scatter across the island onto flat ground. With that, by the time the Marines hit the beach, their entire strategy had been thrown 
totally out of the window. The 1st, 5th, and the 7th Marines are now in for one of the biggest and most vicious fights of the war. And I mean, just from the stories we're going to hear and that we've heard earlier, it sounds like this is kind of like D-Day in its own right. Uh, the men cannot even begin to get off the beach due to the incoming fire and how intense it is. Uh, E.B. Sledge would write in his book about how the incoming fire was so deafening that you literally could not hear the men next to you screaming. And that corpsman, Navy corpsman, uh, it's a uh, uh, medic, right? The, the Navy provides hospital corpsmen to the United States Marine Corps. for The, the, the Marine Corps does not have their own medical uh, capabilities, if you will. They rely on the Navy for that corpsman. Um, the, the, it, but it was so loud, the corpsmen were struggling to respond to downed Marines because they couldn't hear them yelling over the constant barrage of shells and bullets from the Japanese. Okay? So by nightfall on the first day of fighting, the Marines had successfully secured the Two Mile Beach, but they hadn't went more than a mile inland. So they basically are just securing the beach and some. And there is a bigger problem. Chesty Puller's first Marines had run into a complete nightmare of an objective known as the Point. The Point is basically a 30-foot high coral ridge. It's honeycombed with Japanese tunnels and nests. It's a defender's wet dream and it's a attacker's absolute worst nightmare this area is so incredibly defended if you will that the holes are only large enough on the cave exits to stick a barrel through and fire right the japanese have basically sealed themselves into a fighting position uh, now why is the point such an issue to go around it and beat them from behind, right? That would be a sense, right? Uh, well, like I said earlier with the palm groves, they had zero idea this thing even existed. Uh, it wasn't on their maps. They had no idea. So when the Marines pull up and pull their maps out, they're staring at something in front of them that seriously doesn't even exist on their map. And what makes that even better, right, is that the Navy had no idea that it existed. Therefore, they did not target that area for shelling at all. So the pre-shelling engagement did not even touch the point. It was completely intact and untouched. So as the Marines approached the area, they were totally hammered and ripped to pieces by their hidden enemy. And the men of Company K, the uh, E.B. Sledge, they would come up with a theory that was brutal but necessary if they wanted to live. There are pillboxes in this honeycomb system that more than likely had enough munitions to collapse the cave system on the point if detonated. But under a constant fire, it was impossible to get into position. Every single time a Marine would stick his head up to see where the fire was coming from, he would basically take a volley of bullets straight to the face. Thus, you know, killing them, rendering them ineffective, uh, however you're going to view it. 
However, there was a young corporal, I believe his last name was Anderson. Uh, he basically had had enough. Uh, he, you know, they're pinned down. You got to get the pillbox done. He had had enough. Um, the rifleman had attached a grenade to the end of his M1 Garand, right? So uh, the the Allies had, uh, and a lot of different armies did. It was basically like uh, you would place this little contraption with a grenade over the end of you put it. it basically, imagine an, an M203, which is what's under an M4 in today's current environment. That was like that's version. It would shoot with a literal pineapple grenade off the the tip of a M1 Garand, thus creating a grenade launcher. Uh, and that's what Corporal Anderson had. Uh, he put it on the end of his M1 Garand, pulled the trigger once he lifted it over the ridge, and with a thump, sent the grenade into not only the opening of the pillbox, right? Um, it would bounce around on the inside, and as luck would have it for the United States Marines, it would ricochet in enough places to land on top of an unopened, unfired box of 25 millimeter shells. And that was literally all it took. And an incredible blast. The defense system at the point was broken and the Marines had secured it. Now the point would become a literal hill to die on for Company K. Their job was to hold the hill until reinforcements would give them relief. 30 hours later, through relentless counterattacks set forth by Nakagawa, once the relief had shown up, there were only 13 men of Company K still defending the point. And for reference, for those of you going, why does that number matter? Uh, Company K had started the invasion with 235 men. Uh, when they returned home, it's 78 either alive and wounded. So while that's going on, the first Marines are dug in uh, deep, losing dozens of men on the point, right? The fifth Marines were north, making fantastic progress. On the first day of the invasion, they had basically made it to the airfield. And uh, as we know, the airfield's kind of the whole reason anyone's on the island in the first place. It isn't made from fertile land, so the resources absolutely suck. You can't really build anything because the damn ground is like concrete. But you can sure as hell flatten that coral out and land a plane on it. So for both the Marines and the Japanese, this airfield is the end all for this fight. And realizing the Marines are approaching the airfield, Nakagawa sent 15 of his 17 Type 95 tanks with a large group of infantry to disperse of these Marines approaching the airfield. Oh, only the, this is only uh, one of the few things that the Marines are absolutely certain is going to happen. And they're like 100% expecting the Japanese to do this exact maneuver. So while they are waiting, the, the Marines are pre-siting the airfield for artillery and have moved a handful of M4A2 Sherman tanks into position, waiting for the attack. Uh, and the Japanese during all this made a absolute critical error in their counterattack on the Marines. Instead of doing an armored and infantry push, which is they, they work in tandem, they work really well in tandem together. Uh, the Type 95 simply just got too far ahead of the men. Uh, and um, once those 15 tanks arrived, 
Their fate had been sealed, and the Marines gave them everything they had. Like quickly destroying literally all of the Japanese armor. Uh, but by the time the infantry arrived minutes later, there was nothing they could hide behind. There was no support. They just got raked uh, by machine gun fire and would be massacred. And by destroying all of the infantry and all the armor, uh, the airfield basically was open to be secured. Well, great, right? The airfield is secured, and if that's the whole damn mission, this is success. Write it up. Chalk it up. It's a success. No. Remember the mountain range. Well, the Japanese are still in there, still firing downs on the Marines all over the island. And we have to remember there are over 500 caves on this island connected by intertwining tunnels. This stuff is elaborate, and the Marines are at their mercy. Uh, which they have none towards each other, right? Uh, which brings me to a point uh, in the Pacific, the Marines more or less had a motto that they stuck by, uh, that the army takes prisoners, we don't. And this was because the Japanese would also not take prisoners as well. If the Marines were doing uh, this, if they were going to wrap any of this up, they needed to take the fight to the Ermbergal Mountains every single last one of them. So before I go further, I want to stop. I want to stop and make a point here about the United States Marine Corps 16th Field Depot, uh, mainly because I'm going to fast forward here in a bit. I'm going to skip some days uh, to get to the action. But these men of the 16th Field Depot need to be brought up. Uh, for those of us, uh, as in Americans who know American history, we know that our treatment of black Americans has basically uh, been miserable. It's been horrible. It's been atrocious. Uh, from slavery to segregation, uh, we have a history of ill treatment toward our black neighbors. Still, however, in every major war have served in any capacity allowed. The 16th Field Depot was on Peleliu and were black Marines. Now, originally meant to support troops, ammunition, food, uh, supplies, you name it. Uh, as Marines were being killed all over this island, these men specifically volunteered to go into hell and fight. Head first. Absolutely regardless of color. Believe it or not, Marine High Command accepted it. The Marines of the 16th Field Depot grabbed their weapons and went into the fight. And they are credited with pulling numerous wounded and killed Marines from the battlefield under relenting enemy fire. It's been 80 years. I think these gentlemen deserve uh, every bit of recognition. Anyway... Fast forwarding to D-Day plus three, it is now the 19th of September, and the first Marines are already on their way to uncharted and unknown of the Umbergal Mountains. Now, obviously, in fighting, we know that having the high ground is literally what can make or break a fight, so the Marines are focusing their attention on a knob of ground that covers the largest road in the mountains. If you secure this, you secure the road. If you secure the road, well, good odds are that you're going to beat the enemy into submission. 
Hill 1-800 became the target. As the men fought desperately, they eventually would break their way onto the peak. And then one more nightmare would start literally immediately. The maps were wrong. Hill 100 was not the highest point, but a part of a chain that was connected to the highest point. And that highest point was within firing range. And do you want to take a guess on who had control of that mountain during the time or that peak? You'd be right. It was the Japanese. Uh, and they were waiting. So the Marines are now caught in a fight for their life as rounds come in from every ridge on every direction on every mountain from higher elevations above them. Of the 90 men that went up to Hill 100 when they were left to defend it from the onslaught, there were 12 of them left. As the sun set on the Marines, their fight was seriously just beginning. The fighting became so intense that Marine Lieutenant Francis Burke wrote of his experience that night with Sergeant James McClernus. We were attacked by some Japanese at close quarter, and one Japanese thrust his bayonet into my leg. Instead of giving up, I grabbed the man and pummeled him to death with my fist. James was too busy beating a second attacker with the end of his rifle over and over again. Once they had had enough, we threw them off the ridge. In other instances, there are stories and award citations of men literally beating their Japanese defenders to death with large chunks of coral that had been broken off from the ground, or throwing full ammunition boxes down on the heads of their attackers. I think this is the hell hath no fury, right? These Marines and Japanese soldiers are seriously killing each other with their hands at this point. This isn't just a war. It's personal. Face to face, and they are brutally killing each other. Hell 100 would take two weeks to secure in all, and of those 90 that made it to Hell 100, nine would return back to American lines. The hill would become known to the Marines as Bloody Nose Ridge, as the Marine casualty rate rose to 70%. E.B. Sledge would write heavily about his time spent on Bloody Nose Ridge, citing that he knew that the battle was what stole his innocence from him, and that the battle made him hate the enemy more than anything in this world. He would write that the fighting in the ridges was exhausting and costly. Flamethrowers were indispensable. Any cave we attacked was covered by heavy gap fire from other mutually supporting positions, and they all interconnected within the ridges. The gaps fought like demons and shot our stretcher teams, the corpsmen and the wounded. We hated them with a passion known to few antagonists. So by the 15th of October, it's clear that the Marines, they can't take anymore. Uh, they, they're abused at this point. Their men had dwindled and became a shell of its former self. And in just four short weeks, nearly 2,000 Marines were dead. And over 5,000 more were wounded. It's a proven fact that William Rupertus was beyond wrong and underestimated his enemy. The Marines kept taking these blows. They wouldn't be ready for Okinawa, let alone Japan. 
The decision was made for the United States Army to relieve the Marines on the 30th of October and finish off the mission in the Umbergall. Now, let's pause before I get a message from someone telling me that that's not the way that it went. I hate to break it to you, but it did. It was not because the United States Marines could not handle the fighting. They did, and they they legitimately killed over 80% of the defenders on that island. They were exhausted, and they were spent. Uh, once the Army took over the fighting, uh, it, it was basically a wrap anyway. The, the, it was leaning toward the American favor, and the Japanese are staring down uh, a barrel of a gun, quite literally. And on the 24th of November, Colonel Nakagawa would give his final speech telling his men that their sword was broken and had run out of spears. They committed ritual suicide. By doing so, it effectively ended the Japanese defense on Peleliu. But before, before we go any further, real fast, though, uh, believe it or not, the last Japanese defenders on the island would not surrender until 1947. It's kind of a theme after the war. It happened here on Peleliu as well. So, two years after World War II, it ended, gives up, uh, and I'm going to spurt out a couple absolutely wild statistics from this battle that I really hope just kind of places everything into perspective uh, of the situation that these Marines and these Japanese soldiers are facing on this itty-bitty little island in the South Pacific. Um, so just on the American side, right, over 15 million rounds is all combined. Anything shot out of a gun, it's 45, it's, uh, you know, 30 out six, it's you name it. Uh, anything that's fired out of a, a, a gun, over 15 million rounds are fired. 118,000 grenades are utilized. And over 150,000 artillery shells are fired from American troops in a two-month fight. And uh, so you, I guess you could technically say uh, you could double that number, right, if you want, for the Japanese defenders. Maybe a little more, maybe a little less. But let's say double. In two months. Now, let's talk about the whole reason why we did this episode. Was it worth it? How did this whole airfield thing work out for Okinawa, right? That's the whole point. Well, it didn't because the United States would use uh, the airfields on the Ulithi Atoll in the Caroline Islands. And for those of you kind of stopping this, uh, yeah, those islands had already been taken prior to the Palu Island campaign uh, even starting. So you do with that information what you will. Uh, and the airfield really wasn't used that much after the battle. Uh, so my opinion, no, not at all, is stupid. Uh, the men on both sides were killed and maimed needlessly. So why why wasn't it brought up, right? Their government has a obligation, duty to look on these things. Why did it never get brought up? Well, I'll tell you why. Because during this... General MacArthur had returned back to the Philippines. I believe it was like November 17th is when the return of the Philippines started and the Marines were still in heavy combat in the Peleliu Islands. So, I mean, like, really, did dude need it? No, probably not. So that success of making it back to the Philippines heavily overshadowed uh, the losses at Peleliu. 
And for those of you who are wanting to read further about this battle and where I kind of pulled some of these quotes from, um, With the Old Breed by E.B. Sledge, Voices of the Pacific by Adam Marcos, uh, Island of the Dam by R.B. Version, uh, Code Talker, or Code Bra- or I think it's Code Talkers by Tester Nez. I highly suggest all these books. They, they go into detail about time spent on Peleliu, and they give some real harrowing looks into what they face. And ultimately, it allows you to kind of decide for yourself if this battle was worth it for the Americans in World War II. As always, you guys are awesome. I love how much this community has grown, and I get more and more excited for each and every single episode. Obviously, this two-parter was great for me, as I absolutely love the Pacific Theater and could spend my entire life talking about it. This is not to be the last piece of the Pacific that we're going to cover. It's just the beginning. I find it critical that we hit different parts as often uh, as possible and switch it up and change things and, you know, don't focus on one area for too long. Um, And that's what kind of is going to lead me to the next one, next episode or or series or whatever you want to call it. Uh, As this is a World War II podcast, not an American history podcast, We're going to splash dive into the life and legacy behind the only Soviet general that scared the absolute shit out of Joseph Stalin, and that is none other than the Marshal of the Soviet Union, Georgi Konstinovich Zhukov. And if you have no idea who Zhukov is, just buckle up, because he is considered one of the largest pieces to why the Nazis failed in the East against the Soviet Union. So make sure you guys are staying tuned for that, right? Make sure you head over to all the socials and follow us on World on Fire podcast. Make sure you guys leave us a like and review wherever you are listening to our podcast. Thank you all again so much for my American listeners. I hope you all had a fantastic Thanksgiving. And for all of us, we'll talk to you in two weeks.